Welcome back, everyone. This is episode 14 of Jointly Venturing, the only podcast in the world that we know of, tell us if we're wrong, that is dedicated to the theme of world citizenship and how to move the world, ironically, given today's topic of discussion, how to move the world away from a world comprised of nation states and all that are associated with nation states uh, towards a more unified global political structure, which is premised on the very simple fact that all of us as human beings deserve to be treated equally as one another, need to treat one another as members of the same human family, and only in this unified state of being as seven and a half billion people do we truly have a chance to ensure the continued existence of our species, not just for a hundred more years, but for many, many millennia to come. And so today is a very special day on the podcast because we're speaking with Mr. Mike Forster, who is a Bougainvillian, and that is somebody from the island of Bougainville, which is currently part of Papua New Guinea, has a long um, and uh, diverse history, which we're going to go through briefly. But most remarkably, in three days' time, on the 23rd of November 2019, the people of Bougainville will begin voting for the first time on a referendum, choosing whether they would like to be independent and thus break away with, from Papua New Guinea or remain a part of Papua New Guinea, which, of course, uh, only got its independence <coughs> in 1975. So, Mike, how are you today? I'm good, Scott. It's good to hear you, man. Good to hear you, too. So, um, you've obviously been involved in uh, major Bougainvillian events for a really long time. So, maybe just before we get into the details of that, you can just um, give a real brief overview of uh, the history of Bougainville as as you understand it. Um, what, are this, what are some of the key aspects of society and culture there that that listeners won't necessarily know about. Um, and then we can move into some of your own amazing personal stories as well as, um, you know, how we, we both met actually in the mid 1990s in Geneva working at the UN um, and where you think things are going to go on Bougainville um, after the 23rd of November when the voting begins on independence. So yeah, tell us a little bit about the history of Bougainville as, as you see it. Well, uh, prehistory, it was part of the Solomon Islands. That was one big chain there. And then it got, uh, you know, the, the oceans divided it up and Bougainville was separated uh, and the other islands of the Solomons into their individual uh, islands. Um, in, in what about culturally? Like how long have people lived there? Yeah, well, that goes back, you know, maybe forty, fifty thousand 50,000 years. Right. Now they've found pottery up on Booker that they reckon is 40,000 years old. And, uh, yeah, but they, that, the Bougainville in the northern part of the Solomons, they used to marry, trade and eat each other for tens of thousands of years. I mean, they're, they're quite closely related. Mm -hmm. um, it was discovered by Louis de Bougainville in uh, uh, 1600s. He didn't actually land there, but he just named it Bougainville, which is a pretty cool name, I think. 
and mm-hmm. um, and then the Germans moved in and they were occupying Bougainville and New Britain, New Ireland and the northern part of, of what is now Papua New Guinea on the mainland. And um, they did a deal with the Brits in 1760-something, I think it was, uh, where they separated Bougainville from the Solomon Islands in exchange for some land around Apia Harbour. So the Germans got the land in Apia Harbour and the Brits got the the Solomon Islands. They would have got Bougainville too, except that the Americans uh, wanted a piece of that land that they were trying to give away in Apia. You mean Apia in Samoa, right? Yeah, in Samoa. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah. Yeah, and and uh, the Germans didn't have access to the harbour, so they wanted this piece of land. And then when the the Brits told the, the Americans, the Americans said, "Well, if you're giving it away, we'll have this little piece here." So when the the Brit- Brits told um, the Germans in Hamburg, uh, the Germans said, "Well, that's okay. We keep Bougainville." So that's how it got separated from the Solomons. Then after the First right. World War, it got planted up by Queen Emma and and uh, and her entourage, and most of the plantations on Bougainville were owned by her originally. But uh, just before the First World War, she sold them to the German government for a fabulous amount of money, and she retired over to Monaco. And the uh, legend has it she died in the bath of champagne. Then the Germans lost the war, and Australia moved in under the League of Nations and. All those German territories, that's New Guinea, New Ireland, New Britain and Bougainville, were attached to Papua, which was a Queensland state. And then that became the territory of Papua New Guinea. So Papua was was formerly a part of Australia at this time? Yeah, it was an Australian colony. It actually well, it was, was a, a colony, state. But, but, but it was treated as a state. Yeah, treated as a state. The Papuans wow. had Australian citizenship. Oh, that's news to me. I had no idea. Wow, that is remarkable. Mm. And it's even more remarkable given how much Australia totally ignores Papua New Guinea today, essentially, you know? Well, so um, know. They give them about four or five hundred million a year. It's not total, totally ignoring them. And they interfere totally, in not, everything. <laughs> well, yeah, in that regard, that's true. But, I mean, they're, you know, our closest neighbor by far. And... Um, and they're not. It's not particularly a prominent issue, right? In ordinary people's lives in Australia, you don't hear very much about PNG unless you happen to be engaged with the place, you know. So yeah, continue on, continue on. So how long was it under German hands for? Oh, well, let's see, probably a hundred years or so. Right, and you know Germany didn't have that many colonies, so it's you know this is pretty far away from Germany. <laughs> So that's also kind of an unusual aspect of its past. So it switched from German hands into Australian hands. Yeah, as a mandated after, territory after uh-huh. the First World War. After the League of Nations, right? And yeah. then what happened? Well, that's when my grandparents, uh, my grandfather was the manager of the first Commonwealth Bank in Rabaul, which was the old German capital on the island of New Britain. And mm-hmm. they had, had this uh, thing called the Expropriation Board, um, which was to distribute those German plantations to return soldiers. Uh, my grandfather was on the board and uh, he submitted for this place called Rawa on Bougainville. He'd never seen it, but it was, uh, was 14,000 acres. So, and, and 
being on the board, he naturally won it. So uh, Rabaul was pretty far out. I mean, it was a bit like um, Kenya, you know, everybody was there in their whites and having parties all the time. It was a pretty wild town. They had racehorses and all that kind of stuff. So they jumped on a schooner and sailed out to the dark island of Bougainville into Rawa Harbour and started our plantation. And and that would have been what in the 1920s or something. Yeah, 19. They bought it, I think, in 1921. They went out there in 1923. So yeah, right, nearly 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. But uh, yeah, so. And, and what did he? And did he immediately go there to live, or what? What did he do? Yeah, they went there to live. They set up there. They took a carpenter, a, a Chinese carpenter, with them, and their cook boy. They were living in Queen Emma's house in Rabaul, Gunantambo it was called. And uh, she'd left her old cook there who was a booker, came from the small island of Bougainville and he Uh wanted to go home. So they brought him home and then he was there, their cook. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And and Rabaul, by the way, got decimated by a volcano not too long ago. Yeah, well, it got decimated in 1934, too. My grandfather was actually there. He was setting up the Planters Association because um, the only suppliers were, were Burns Philp, and they had the only ship. And then when the Depression came along, they started to foreclose on all these plantations, so they formed the Planters Association, and the headquarters was in Rebel. Yeah, right, right. And he was in there, I think it was 1934 or something like that, and uh, those same volcanoes blew up while he was there. And then they, it just reveals an incredible place. I mean, it's almost, you know, prehistoric and smells of sulfur, and it always has, and it's just ringed with volcanoes. Does Bougainville have any volcanoes? Yeah, we've got two. Yeah, right. Balbi and Bagana. Bagana's a big one. Every now and again it blows off and uh, just layers a nice little ash of volcanic ash all over the island for the cocoa. It's really good. Oh, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So um, so in the 20s, your granddad went there, got a plantation. Mm-hmm. Um, did he immediately plant cocoa or did he grow other things? What did he do? Uh, it was just coconuts in those days. Okay. I mean, co- cocoa didn't come along until the 50s. Uh-huh, right. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they were there and they were doing that and uh, they were making heaps of money because um, like coconut is part of uh, saltpeter, I think it is. It's one of the ingredients in, in, in armaments and the Second World War was approaching and they stayed there and got chased out by the Japanese, went down to, to the coast. Uh, they ran away right up into the mountains to the Toynitas, the headhunters up there, and then they came down and got on uh, an American submarine, the Nautilus, and that took them down to Cairns, underneath the Japanese fleet that was sort of amassing around the Solomons. And what year did the Japanese eventually invade Bougainville and take it over? Uh, I think it was fairly early on, 1940, something like that. So it was was under Australian rule at the time, and uh, Japan then occupied it in the early part of the war. Yeah, then the Americans came in and set up a big base over in Torrequina on the west coast. Of Bougainville? Yeah, of Bougainville. Huge. Right. 
And there was a lot of fighting on Bougainville during the Second World War. Yeah, tens of thousands of Japanese lost their lives. Tens of thousands. I just saw on uh, on the news the other day uh, that 521 Australians lost their lives too. Yeah, nothing compared on, to the Japanese. Though. Yeah, nothing compared to the Japanese. But it's another it's another one of those parts of Australian linkages to Bougainville that are not known, you know, by the population at large. So they, the Japanese occupied it. There was extensive fighting during the war. And when, uh, when did the Allies finally take Bougainville back? Oh, well, it was towards the end of the war. They had to take Rabaul, too, because the Japanese moved into Rabaul. That was their headquarters. And then they moved on to Bougainville. And, of course, they were going to push down through the Solomons and into Australia. And uh, we had the Coast Watchers on Bougainville, and they were the ones that alerted uh, the Allies to to the Japanese fleet going down, and they were able to sink them and stop the whole debacle. So Bougainville played a, a very important role um, in the war. But they weren't just after it strategically, you know, they wanted the coconuts. Mm-hmm. Mm. Sure. And... Um, um... I mean, we'll come to uh, you know the people of Bougainville shortly, and the and the amazing culture and and other stories of the people that have lived there for so long. But um, just sticking to the geopolitical arrangements at the moment. So the Japanese eventually surrendered and left. Um, it was then occupied, reoccupied by the Allies. Um, mm-hmm. Did the Americans play any role at that time, or was it just the Australians that were administering it? No, it, uh, under the United Nations, uh, it was given back to Australia to administer. And, oh, okay. Uh, America went to Guam or wherever they went. And when did uh, when did Bougainville formally get linked to Papua New Guinea? In that deal with the Germans and, and the Brits. So it was already part of Papua New Guinea, or, or what became Papua New Guinea at the time. Yeah, after um, the First World War, it became right. Papua. Papua and New Guinea. Before that, it was just New Guinea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it was all. It was essentially treated as an integral whole um, from the end of World War One until uh, until this day, really. Yeah. Well, this day is Maybe. an autonomous region, but it's still obviously officially part of Papua New Guinea. Yeah. Um, but it might not be if the referendum. Um, has a positive result, which we'll talk about um, in a bit. So, um, what year were you born? I was born in 48. 48. And were you born on Bougainville or in Australia? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you I were was born, born in Bougainville. I've got my, my birth certificate says Sahano 2, because I never sort of recorded the indigenous births. Sahano uh, 1 is um, Ben Crop, the shark hunter. His parents were missionaries up there in Booker. So you were like the, the first uh, non-indigenous, the second non-indigenous person who, whose birth was registered? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, right, right. When my, uh, when my mother and father came back, my, my mother met my father. He was an English uh, officer, a captain, and they met in Burma, and they um, they came back to Rawa, and then he went around to Torikino and started salvaging. He salvaged this barge there, 
while they were in Bern, but he, he was a professional card player, like he loved poker and he played a lot of a lot of poker and he won this ruby over there from this Maharaja or whatever and the Maharaja said, you know, oh, thank God I've lost it in battle, it's yours now, it's cursed, you know, if you ever lose this terrible tragedy will before your family. Anyway, they came back and they got this barge and they were making heaps of money running fuel to Rabaul and Marsden matting and, and bits of machinery and stuff. But the only fuel was the aircraft fuel from the base and it was, you know, highly inflammable. Anyway, when I was two months old, uh, he, he went down into the engine room and turned the key and it blew up and he was burnt to death. He died in the same leaf hospital that I had been born in. I was a I was a caesarean. They had to take me up to the local hospital, which wasn't a hospital at all. They used the lights off the barge to sort of do the operation, and the the, the doctor and the nurse flew in from Rabaul on the Catalina. And uh, I was born on my mother's birthday and the nurse's birthday, Tilly. It was her birthday too. All three of us. <laughs> wow. What day? What day is that? I don't Talk remember. About Talk about oneness. That was, yeah, that's, that's some oneness there. What <laughs> um, what day? What day was that? Your birthday? I forget. Well, it's the fourteenth uh, of January. Fourteenth of January. All right, coming up. Wow. Mm. So you were essentially born in a in like a, almost a bush setting, um, very rudimentary kind of place. And so back to the barge. So you're on you you were on the barge with your father at the time. Yeah, yeah, and Nari was on there. Nari's my mother, and uh, she tossed me overboard, and the, the locals grabbed me and swam ashore. And then she had to paddle for a couple of hours back to Sahano in a canoe, and I hung out with the, the locals in the village there, and they sort of adopted me from that point on. So you, in a way, you had two families growing up. Yeah, well, a Western I mean, family and a and a Bougainvillean family. That's right. That's why I sort of think of myself as a zebra cub. We used to say, oh, Mike, you know, he's white on the outside, he's black on the inside. But that's not really how I feel. I feel more like a zebra. Uh-huh. A bit of both. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's that's a good way to feel. So um, um, had she not thrown you off the barge, you would not be here, we presume, right? And uh, Yeah. And had the local people not saved you, you obviously wouldn't be here, so... Thankfully, you are. So that happened all the way back in 1948. That's right. Um, the year of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, by the way, I, of course. I know. I know. Yeah. We came along together. We both came together. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. So, um, well, tell you know now that you mentioned the the lo some of the local people, you know what's what's the local culture like to people who don't know Bougainville or who have never met Bougainvillians. Um, what are some of its, uh, you know, distinguishing characteristics that make it so special? Well, first of all, I think they're the blackest people on the planet. They are very black. Yeah. And it's a very old tradition. And, um, you know, they live, village life is pretty much lived the way it's always been lived, except they've got a generator so they can watch the uh, state of origin. By the way, the first state of origin game ever played was played on Bougainville between the Queensland and New Zealand Australian troops, uh, New South Wales Australian troops. <laughs> wow, what year was that roughly, do you know? Uh, I don't know, it was like, during that occupation in World War Two. World War Two time, yeah, right, wow, yeah. amazing. Mm -hmm. 
and um, tell so, us a little bit about. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you more about. I'll yeah, tell you more yeah, about absolutely. the village life. Do. Um, like the people up in the mountains used to come down and raid the villages on the coast, and they'd eat a couple of guys and steal their women, and then they'd take them back up there. And then after a while, there'd be a huge reconciliation sing-sing and they'd come down and reconcile. And in the process of that reconciliation, the guys from the mountains would give some women back to the coast and that's how they stopped interbreeding, you know, with this sort of system they had. And uh, wow. I think that's, that's played, played a big role in the peacemaking too because it's a very... You know, they forgive them, they come down, they kill a few people, eat them, take their women, go back up, and then they come back down and they all make it up again over a few pigs. I tried to tell Bougainville Copper, you know, just <laughs> buy some pigs and have a chat. You can sort this out. Oh, my goodness. So when did uh, cannibalism end there? Oh, the Seventh-day Adventists, they came in and they... Um, they went up into the mountains and and I don't know, it must have been, it was before the, the Second World War and they stopped them eating pig, you know, long pig and short pig and they turned them into vegetarians and, and, and very nice people. Long pig being? Humans. Humans, right? Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> well, that reminds me of that story you said about um, barking cow. <laughs> Similar yeah. kind of way of thinking so what was barking cow uh well <clears throat> after um png withdrew from bougainville in this current war that's just been on there everybody all, all the euros left and they left their dogs and there were dogs everywhere and there, there, there was no fresh meat so barking cow was just dogs basically people cooked them up very nice too you you partook yeah, I've had a bit of barking cow. Makes yeah. a good gravy. <laughs> okay, well, we'll let, we'll let you uh, savor that experience. Now, so just back to when you were young then. So were you brought up in a traditional setting, albeit on a plantation arrangement? Yeah, um, well, not long after uh, Peter died, um, his father died in England, and so they went over to England to sort of get her away, and they had a manager on Rawa, and then Cam, the, my grandfather, he died in England. So then there was just the two women to run the plantation when they came back, and I, I just used to hang out in the village, you know, that's where my friends were, that's where I had fun. I rolled along the beach and jumped in the, the water, and they used to always pinch my skin to watch the blood run back. They thought that was very amusing. But right. we got on I mean, okay. I mean did you even see yourself as white? Did you even know you were white? Uh, I suppose so, but I mean, like uh, Nari and, and Lala, that's my grandmother's name, they used to have to talk to me in pigeon. I didn't speak any English, so I just sort of hung out down, you know, had my friends. And I'd, uh, Who thinks about black and white at that age? You just don't even think about it, do you? Yeah. Absolutely. It's all learned behavior, man. You know, yeah. it's it's not built into anybody from mm. birth. And, and that's, you know, that's one of the great tragedies of the current time in which we are speaking. You know, the the reemergence of, you know, despicable forms of racism and white supremacy and authoritarianism and populism and nationalism and all these 
all these isms that, uh, you know, we kind of thought we'd already fought against successfully and won and we could move forward to a much brighter future. But all of these things were never really vanquished. And in fact, they were just simply pushed down, kept out of sight, but never really disappeared. And now we're, you know, unfortunately going through a really rough historical period, you know, in that regard. So well, it's what very about... difficult with culture. I mean, you, you look at uh, you look at Iraq and and Libya. Mm-hmm. You know that 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 man in, uh, in Iraq, he was uh, one of nine, grew up barefoot in a village, and somehow ended up being the strong man to sort of keep that place in check. And that's the way they've done it for thousands and thousands of years. And we can't interfere with that culture. We haven't done anything to improve Iraq, it's in much worse shape. Now, sure, they're, they're horrible despots, and I wouldn't want them to be head of my company, country, but that's that was their culture. We, we interfered with their culture, and, and, and that's a very sensitive issue, you know, culture. It absolutely is, and it's all, you know, it's also a word that's almost impossible to define, right? Because um, what's culture to some people is oppression uh, to another and you know the, li- the, the list goes on but mm. disrespecting other cultures is virtually always a recipe for disaster and at the same time um, accepting every aspect of every culture universally in a sort of relativistic manner that doesn't either really serve the, f- the future evolution of our species you know, and so once again, uh, you know, a middle way is really the way forward on that whole broad question. You know, very often you have people arguing that we do this thing because of our culture, you know, and we act in this manner because of our culture. And that's often just a smokescreen for, you know, far more heinous belief structures <laughs> um, than sure. are acceptable. So you hear that a lot from, you know, uh, white supremacists, for instance, you know, in the United States, saying the Confederate flag is our culture, you know, and everything yeah. that's symbolized by the Confederate flag, i.e., you know, the time of that country's history when they had slaves, etc., um, is just somehow justifiable because it's the part of their culture, you know. Well, I'm talking and, uh, about real culture, man. I'm talking about real culture, you know, the culture yeah. where – see, it – those people over there with their slaves and everything, they didn't come from there. They, they went in and invaded that place. And, and, you know, the people that were there, they had it all sorted. They were cool. Wouldn't we, we wiped them out. You know, we've got the same problem here in Australia. People that know the land, know how to live there, know how to manage it, and we just treat them as inferiors and, and just wipe out their cultures. You know, that's the thing. You destroy culture, you destroy the environment, you destroy everything. It's been developed over thousands and thousands of years. I'm not talking about the mm-hmm. whiteies that sort of went over and colonized the USA. Who gives a stuff about that culture? You know, what they, they, the, some of them were Irish, some of them were, you know, that Dutch. They came from all over the place. They, all, they, were, all, they were a melting pot of cultures. No, oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, I could have given a hundred other uh, examples. I just happened to come across that one because it's so prevalent today. But I mean, deep culture, as in, let's say, indigenous culture, um, that's indeed a whole nother story. And that mm-hmm. is something which traditionally has been totally disregarded 
by the dominant forces on the planet, i.e. the ones that had sailing ships and guns who felt the need to go conquer uh, and occupy the rest of the planet, <laughs> which continues to this day just in a different form. And uh, respect for culture is virtually never at the top of their priority list, shall we mm. say. It's at the bottom, if anywhere at all, you know, usually it's not anywhere at all. Um, it's just, it used to be purely about political and economic power. Now it's largely economic power, but equally uh, military power. Um, and the, the irreplaceable, extraordinary nature of true culture gets lost in the process and often dies out and, or is simply eradicated. Um, as if it was nothing, you know, and that's, you know, one of the great tragedies of our time. I mean, every time any aspect of any culture is allowed either to fade away or is actively oppressed, um, humanity as a whole loses out. It's just one more step backwards. It's one more loss that us collectively um, uh, experience, whether or not we even know about that culture. And most people, most places don't really know a great deal about other people's cultures, particularly the fine um, details of those things. And for a lot of people to this day, culture is life. Li everything in their entire existence is culture. And we're not talking about going to the opera here. You know, we're not talking about, you know, high levels of uh, university academic achievement. Um, we're talking about the way people live and the conditions in which they express themselves in their relationship to each other, to nature, to the environment, and to uh, to each other, ultimately, you know? And well, there's a lot of spirituality involved. Almost always. Almost hmm. always. I mean, I, I, you know, Aboriginal people in Australia, Indigenous people virtually everywhere for instance, in terms of their relationship to land, um, you, you, you simply cannot uh, uh, distinguish a human being from the land from which they come. The land and the human is the same. They're, you cannot break them apart. And that's a concept that's almost impossible for the Western world uh, free marketeer types to understand or imagine, if they even tried. You know, And that's just one example of of countless others that where culture has been just you know disavowed by more dominant more powerful more wealthy um entities that seek to enrich themselves by quashing the culture of others by taking their land and digging their minerals out of the ground yeah Which is, well, of course, I mean, that, what that's a real problem Bougainville. for Bougainville. it's a real problem for Bougainville because you know, it was the biggest copper, gold and silver mine in the Southern Hemisphere, I think, in the world at the time when they, they shut it down. And was it about money or was it about culture? I mean, obviously, they, they, they're very strong on the cultural aspects of things now. Uh, but at the same time, you know, they're talking to this mining company and that mining company and, you know, who knows what's going to happen after independence. It might so when, become when, another when part of China. So we're talking about the um, yeah we're gonna we're definitely gonna talk about that in a minute, but just to explain to people um, when was the Panguna mine first opened? When when did they first start exploiting it for the 
the copper and the gold that's there. Do you know? Yeah, late 60s. And was that by Rio Tinto Zinc or some other companies? Yeah, they they actually had their boat in the harbour, in Rawa Harbour, our harbour, and they were looking up in Mudahai, up where those uh, headhunters came from. And they reckoned that was a good prospect, but um, Nari and her second husband, Les Watkins, they entertained them every night and just begged them, please don't ruin our rivers. Just, you know, do it somewhere else. So eventually they went down there, down south. So these were like the exploratory, uh, you know, first vanguard of the of the mining yeah, company? They, they were yeah, snooping they, around looking for places to dig, essentially? <clears throat> yeah. And this is uh, in the 60s? Yeah, in the 60s. And then they eventually decided on Panguna, which is in the eastern part of Bougainville, right? Southern. Well, so, sort of, southern, they, they call it central. They call central. it central Bougainville, but it's actually south of central. All right. And then they they decided to start digging at Panguna. They got permission to do so, I guess, from the Australian-led uh, colonial government. Yeah, well, Bougainville's a matrilineal society. The women own the land. Mm-hmm. And they were lying down in front of the bulldozers and protesting and carrying on. But um, Even at the beginning? Right at the beginning. Right at the right. beginning. They, they just didn't want it. They didn't want their land messed with. But uh, Rio Tinto just appointed some male chiefs here, there, and did deals and got signatures on paper and moved in. The women have always objected. Right, right. And so from the the mid-60s till the early 90s, they were active there, or late 80s? Yeah, yeah. 25 years of, of basically <coughs> digging, digging out the biggest copper mine slash gold mine in the Southern Hemisphere. Oh, it's a huge hole, a big sore in the middle of Bougainville and the pollution is still running out of it and they destroyed the Java River and, yeah, but at the same time, they, they sealed some roads here and there and, you know, they built a town and there was a supermarket and three and a half thousand expatriates were employed there. It was a big culture shock, no doubt about that. Yeah, I once saw. I I wouldn't know where to find it now. I mean, I guess you could just look around. But on the internet, there's a there's kind of like a an archive of photographs and things from from the RTZ workers that were living on Bougainville in the 60s and 70s, um, which shows you know life as an expat miner on Bougainville. <laughs> For anybody who's interested, you can find out what that was like. It was pretty um, bloody good. But, <laughs> Oh yeah, on the one, on maybe for them in terms of their income, but not so great for the local people. So, so life was continuing on, and and the mine was there and bringing in lots of money to RTZ and to the Australian government, I suppose, but very little to uh, most bo- ordinary Bougainvillians who are largely living at subsistence level, I suppose, and as they still are. Um, and then what happened? I mean, what went wrong in the 1980s that led to the beginning of uh, the processes which are still playing themselves out now? The mine was developed to fund the independence of Papua New Guinea, and that came in 1975. 
And at that stage was the first secession movement on Bougainville. They were trying to secede. They didn't want to be part of Papua New Guinea when Papua New Guinea got independence. Uh-huh, right, right, yeah. right. So that, so that was the theory. They were going to allow independence of Papua New Guinea to occur and have it economically developed by exploiting the mine. That's right. And, and I, I don't remember the exact number, but when PNG got independence, there was very small number of people with university degrees that were citizens of that country, right? My, Michael Samari was a disc jockey. He was the first prime minister. He's put it, put it in a spin and it hasn't stopped spinning ever since. <laughs> right. So, um, so they're exploiting this mine in the 70s, 80s, and then, then what happened? Well... The Bougainvillians, uh, it was supposed to be renegotiated, the agreement with the landowners every seven years, and they'd only done it once. When Papua New Guinea got independence, they sort of made some adjustments on, I think, 2% coming back to Bougainville or some, some. They made some arrangement, and then they just refused to renegotiate, even though it was in the agreement every seven years it was to be, you know, renegotiated. And um, the landowners got up no good. I mean, they were sitting around the rim in these fibro buildings, which is alien to them, but built by, by Rio Tinto, just watching their land not only being dug up, but being carried overseas, and they started to get very upset. So when Papua New Guinea would not, and BCL, Bougainville Copper Limited, which was the company that Rio Tinto formed, when uh, they wouldn't renegotiate... Uh, a guy named Francis Ona said, well, that's it. I've had enough and uh, started shooting people and blowing up pylons and closing the mine down. And, and when then, was that? What year well, was that? That was 89. Yeah, 89. And then Papua New Guinea sent in a riot squad and the defence force and they just started abusing anybody that was black and... and Pretty soon, the, the Revolutionary Army was not just defending the mine. It, they got a, a notion of independence, and, and it spread across the islands. The only problem was that it was anarchy, you know. After PNG pulled out and the BRA, these young guys there with their guns, and so it was law through the, the, the barrel of the gun. And so the villagers up north got upset, and they formed another militia to fight with the PNG DF against Bougainville. I mean, it just turned into a civil war as well as a, a war with Papua New Guinea. It was very, very messy. And, and getting that, them together wow. was the hard part. Right. So it really, it, it initially started out essentially as a, as a environmental complaint of, uh, you know, the destruction of local land and territory. And uh, I guess grievances were put to the Mine, mine, mining company and uh, BCL, etc., and nothing really happened. And they felt that they would have a better chance if they took up arms. And then they they were fighting for the mine, I guess, for the land around the mine. And then it kind of morphed into something much bigger once Papua New Guinea sent in uh, their own military forces. Yeah, and, and especially after they withdrew, because okay they withdrew all government services withdrew everything they shut down the provincial government so who was running the place the bra these half of them were criminals you know how long did was that period of time when the so the bra was led by francis ona and then how long did that period last the initial fighting until papua new guinea pulled out 
Um, it was only a year or so, less, I think. And and the fighting wasn't all that serious because uh, it got serious when uh, PNG reinvaded a couple of years later. But at that stage, uh, something could have been worked out. You know, I, I flew down to Melbourne and talked to BCL and said and said that thing about the pigs. I said, Gee, you know, why don't you just talk to the landowners? We had a thing up around my area called the Timputs Peace Committee, myself and a few other chiefs, because I'm an initiated chief. I got initiated when I was 12. That's how I got involved in the, the whole thing. Right, right. So I went down representing them and said, look, we're, we're from up north, you know, and this is all about what's happening in Panguna. We'll send in a delegation to have a chat with them and we'll get back to you. And it, 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 it can be sorted out. You know, every inch of Bougainville is under land dispute, whether it's a plantation or a village land, it's always under land dispute. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and this is how we sort it out. We, we talk and we kill some pigs and come to some kind of an arrangement. And they said, oh, PNGDF is going to reinvade. Uh, you know, we'll have the mine open within a, within a fortnight. And I said, well, it won't stay open that long. So they did reinvade and it was closed within a few days because uh, General Sam Kiner, who was in the PNGDF, I think he was a lieutenant in the PNGDF, but he was an explosive expert trained in Australia. He went back. Uh, he said, I'm not going to kill my own people. So he went up and joined Francis Owner. And then they started to get military tactics organised and, you know, they started kicking ass, really. So there was so when they reinvaded, I guess this would be, what, 91 or so? Around there, ninety early nineties, when Papua New Guinea reinvaded, um, how long was their was their you know new occupation? How long did that last? Just a few days, as you said. Uh, or... No, they tried. They tried. They kept on trying. You know, they took over Booker, a small island on the north, and um, and then they were always trying to push south. And they had those helicopter gunships. They were flying around, sort of slaughtering people from the sky and they go into a village and rape the women and shoot a few guys and burn the place down. I mean, they were out of control and that's what angered the culture, I guess. Everybody mm-hmm. got angry about that. But then the BRA was doing a bit of that too. You know? They were pretty bad. Well, it was kind of no, no good guys at the time. And, um, well, there were good guys and um, mm. that was probably you and a few others that tried to bring about a peaceful resolution of the conflict. So the conflict effectively went on for about 10 years, right? Yeah, I was in there in 1990 when they they put the blockade around Australia and Papua New Guinea put a, a, a total blockade around the island. Now, I'd been up and talked to Francis Owner. I helped him draft a UDI, and uh, but I was getting a bit harassed by... What's a UDI? Uh, Universal Declaration of Independence. Okay. Mm-hmm. The only person to recognise that was Gaddafi. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and and um, I got a soft spot. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, um, how did Gaddafi even know about it? Oh, we sent it out. We sent it, sent it out. out to the world, and then, yeah. and then leaders were given a choice to support it or not, and. The only one that supported it was Muammar Gaddafi. <laughs> yeah, everybody okay. ignored it. Australia said ignore it, so they ignored it, you know. 
How long did the blockade last around Bougainville? Gee, six years, I think. And that included like medical supplies and food and everything? Yeah, everything. Everything. But, you know, they had 40,000 years of living there. That didn't worry them too much. In fact, they looked healthier when I went back in there because I hadn't been drinking Coca-Cola and beer and cigarettes and rice and tinfish. They were back in their traditional diets. And they, were, they looked pretty good. But they say 20,000 people lost their lives, not in direct conflict, a lot of them because of lack of medical supplies. Joseph Carberry was the premier... Uh, at that stage, and the BRA was harassing him in, in the provincial government offices. So I took him up to talk to Francis Owner, and they formed the Bougainville Interim Government because I said, you know, my guys up in Timputs don't want to be ruled by someone sitting on a mountain down here in Nassoy. You know, you've got to get other chiefs involved. You've got to, we've got to form a, a government, and if you use Kabui, he's a recognised democratically elected leader of Bougainville, get him on board and uh, we might get somewhere. Right, right, right. And um, so, I mean, just back to that incredible figure, you just had 20,000 people out of a population of about 160,000, right? Yeah. Um, so one-eighth of the population lost their lives during the, uh, the conflict. I mean, that's well, staggering. You know, that's maybe staggering. 10%. Yeah, well, if even if it's ten percent, I mean, ten, you know, imagine that's that would be two and a half million Australians um, losing their life in a conflict. If the you know, if we take the same ratio, you know, three hundred mm. uh, three thirty three million, you know, you know, Americans, etc. I mean, that is just a staggering level of of death and destruction and despair, almost unprecedented in in the world. I would say. I don't think there's um, any family that hasn't been affected. Right, and it's still, you know, it's still very fresh in the minds of, you know, many people. There was a book written, I think they made a film about it, called Mr. Pip, mm. which uh, takes place during the conflict, right? During the yeah. Uh, yeah. conflict on Bougainville, um, which is, you know, really recommended reading if you want to learn the details of how harsh and how brutal <clears throat> that time was for a lot of ordinary people. Um, so around the time that you were, um, working with Joseph Kabui, um, and getting, and, and Francis Ona and getting the Bougainville interim government established, that would be in the early nineties. Yeah. Um, you suddenly went from being a cocoa grower, uh, and a surfer guy and a chief into becoming something you could have never, ever predicted, which was an international diplomat. So tell us about that. Yeah, well, they, um, they, wanted, uh, they wanted passports, so they bought me a ticket to Singapore, and I went over and hung out in Singapore for a while. That's a whole other story on its own. But um, then when I came back... What do you mean they wanted passports? Just explain that to everyone. Well, well I had to get some passports printed up. I got them printed in Singapore. So the the Bougainvillean interim government wanted their own. They wanted to issue their own passports. Yeah, well, they thought you know UDI were independent. We'll need your passports. We can't travel on PNG passports. So I went and got some of those whipped up in Singapore. That they, they had another agenda as well. But that you'll have to read my book to, <laughs> to see that. <laughs> 
It was very okay. exciting, Singapore. Uh, what's, your, so what's, I, your, what, what's your book called? Just uh, We'll come back to it, but just to make sure people know about it. Uh, it's called Come the Revolution. I'm going to try and get it published in New Zealand. I like uh -huh. New Zealand. Mm. And they've played a huge role in Bougainville, but that comes later. Yeah, so anyway, when I got back to Australia, I linked up with uh, Moses Harvini, and, and there were some human rights people attached to Community Aid Abroad, Mm -hmm. And they were getting um, they were getting transcripts from priests that had a radio on Bougainville and were were sending out reports of the human rights violations. And um, anyway, I got put in touch with Tony Simpson and Howard Berman, who is right, uh, Howard, right. Howard Berman was a professor from California that represented the International Indian Treaty Council, and Tony Simpson represented um, the National and Aboriginal Island Legal Service, so the Aboriginals and the, the Indian sort of guys. And um, they talked us into sending a delegation to the Indigenous Work Group, which was just the perfect move. At we the started, UN, at the United at the, Nations. Yeah, in Geneva. Mm -hmm. in it was Geneva. right at the bottom of the ladder. And we got all the the world's indigenous people behind us, and and uh, and and interest from NGOs, uh, in particular, UMPI, the United uh, was the Unrepresented Nations and Peoples Organization, which is where I met you. Absolutely, absolutely. That would have been when 1992 or something, right? Yeah, 92. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we went up there, up to uh, Holland, and had the GA there, and. Um, and then I had Tony and Howard's guidance early on, or we had. A cowboy came over and, and stood up and addressed the, uh, the United Nations and was very impressive. And Irene Diaz, the chair uh, person, yes, took quite a <laughs> took quite a liking to him. And and um, and there was a guy there, Judge Treat, and I sort of um, played oh, yeah. all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. William yeah. Treat, the U.S. representative, yeah. Yeah, he recommended that it go up to the subcommission. All so, right, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was in the recommendations of the of the work group. That's right, because the, the working group, I mean, just for people that don't know, the, um, the, this is really the first time ever in the entire history of the United Nations that a specific body was created to focus just on the rights of indigenous people who are 350 to 500 million people depending on how you define them across the world i mean it's more than you know it's, it's approaching 10 percent. maybe some people would even say higher uh numbers of indigenous people um it's a significant portion of humanity who's almost always been uh, you know on the oppressed end of of the ladder and finally they have put into place a body to look specifically into indigenous rights and that now 20, 30 years later has evolved into, you know, a much larger, much more powerful um, body, you know, that really? meets um, every year. Yeah. And, that, you know, under the auspices of the um, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Well, under, well that's what it was, yeah. was established to to develop a draft for that. That's why it was established. And I thought after the, the, the declaration it, it disappeared. Oh, that's interesting. Scott. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, it's really moved on. There's like an assembly and everything. Yeah, it's really moved on very significantly. Um, wish, wish we could do that in Australia. But, 
Yeah, well, maybe maybe one day. <laughs> so, okay, so you like you were sent not having any formal training as a diplomat. Um, you were basically sent out to first UNPO, United uh, Unrepresented Nations and People's Organization, and then the UN Working Group on Indigenous Peoples, to raise the case of of Bougainville and generate um, international support. And that was in Geneva. So I think the first time you went there was 92 from memory, 91 or 90, I th 91 or 92, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. I've Around got that all time. The files I, in the office, but I'm not in the office. Well, I remember, I mean, cause we, I think we, we met first in Holland and then we met again, of course, in Geneva and worked a lot together on, uh, all sorts of aspects of getting the Bougainville case raised. And I remember the first year that you were in Geneva, um, we attempted to get a resolution adopted by the subcommission, but it didn't work. Yeah, I think that was 91. 91 I think the first, so. first, first resolution was 92. So we tried in 91. Um, we had a draft, right? We went. We had a draft resolution. Went around trying to get support for it. Bougainville was just too new and too unknown on the uh, on the international scene at that time. But so it took another year, and then I think, yeah, indeed, no, I I didn't review my files before talking to you today, but I'm pretty sure it was '92 that you got the first resolution ever adopted on the the human rights situation in Bougainville, mm -hmm. and that was at the subcommission. Yeah, and on that it was recommended to go to the commission. So it sort of went from there. Five resolutions later, the UN was deeply involved. So was that five re resolutions <coughs> at the commission and subcommission level, or are you counting yeah. General Assembly resolutions too? No, I'm not counting them. Yeah, so the first two or three were subcommission. Mm. At this time, there was a body, by the way, uh, listeners, called the subcommission on the prevention of discrimination and for the protection of minorities it no longer exists it's been it's been uh, sort of morphed into what's now the council the human rights council um and that body the subcommission was 26 independent experts um very progressive body at the time by the way um and that body was accountable to the commission on human rights which is comprised of states governments 53 states um, more powerful than the subcommission. So anything that you got into the through the subcommission, you wanted to then get the commission to do something on the same topic and then issue instructions to the UN system or to states um, about the next steps. So, the, I mean, you know, I guess if 92 or 93 was the first victory, the first resolution, I mean, I have to say from a personal perspective, having spent, you know, thousands and thousands of hours at the subcommission and the commission over the years and, and working on, you know, countless initiatives and, and resolutions, there was probably no victory sweeter than the one that, that, uh, that happened that day when the first Bougainville resolution was adopted. And we, we all, you, me, and a bunch of others that we were working with went up to the top public viewing gallery because you could actually look down into the room even though we're normally in the room you could see everything from the top of the room who's voting and who's lobbying and stuff and i'll never forget that moment when they mm. finally said re resolution approved man that was pretty special you remember that 
Oh, yeah. Never to be forgotten. I mean, the only reason that I ever got anywhere was because of people like yourself and Howard and Tony and and Jose Ramos, people that knew the system, that had spent those hours in those bodies and knew how to play the game. And they taught me how to play the game. I played the game. That's I played it like a game, you know. But I you, mean, played were, it, you played it in, in an extraordinary way. <laughs> you know, unlike yeah. unlike any other diplomat before or since, I think that's for sure. Yeah, I no mean, question. you sit up, you sit up in that human rights commission, and you listen to people that have come back year after year with the most gruesome, horrible stories. But people just don't really listen because they, they don't know how to play the game. They don't know how to, you know, have a bit of fun with it and sort of make friends. And it's really only because of friends. I mean, I didn't know. I didn't know squat. I'd read a book on international law and jumped on a plane. Yeah, and I think it's really, like, it's ultra important for people to realize that, you know, people just think, oh, UN, you know, it doesn't do that much, or or the UN, oh, it's just for elite people, or whatever they may think about it. The reality is often really different, particularly in the political bodies, like the human rights bodies that we're talking about. And, you know, you have literally hundreds of NGOs running around hundreds and hundreds from all across the world, every single political issue you can think of, there are representatives there trying to get it on the agenda, trying to get resolutions adopted, trying to get action undertaken. And the vast majority of these NGO people have literally no money at all. They have to scrimp and save just to get the ticket to get Mm -hmm. to Geneva. And then you have to stay in Geneva, one of the most expensive cities in the world, for four weeks or six weeks or even longer. Um, You often work literally... 18 to 20 hour days, sometimes weeks on end, in order to do everything you need to do in order to push the stuff, meetings every night. And you have, uh, you're lucky if you're, you know, sleeping on someone's floor, you know, with six other people in the room. I mean, it's really not (laughs) a luxurious proposition by any stretch of the imagination. People are just barely making ends meet and yet fighting to, you know, tooth and nail peacefully to find positive pro-human rights solutions to these these horrible problems. And, you know, oftentimes going to, you know, we would, because uh, I was in a way in, in the same boat, um, you know, fighting for all the issues I was working on. Um, but we would literally go to government receptions that were held in the missions, the embassies of, mm. of, of governments after the session ended at six till eight at night, usually. We would often go to those those receptions, not just to lobby the government people and the <laughs> diplomats, but to get free food, right? To get uh, free food, free wine, and the Russians always had vodka and caviar, and the Chinese always had really good food, and um, you know, a number of and the Dutchies always had cheese, you know. <laughs> so we would go to these receptions because we had not literally had no money, um, and get you know enough food to sustain us till the next reception 24 hours later, you know? And yet we're talking about, you know, all the NGOs there are talking about the, the, the most important issues in the world, you know? I mean, we're talking about genocide. We're talking about war crimes. We're talking about mass displacement. We're talking about so many issues. And um, yeah, I mean, that's a side of work at the UN that most people don't actually know about or or realize and or or how just how hard it is to get a resolution through at the United Nations. This doesn't isn't something that just happens. I mean, you really, really, especially, especially when you declare 
that uh, you're there fighting for the right to self-determination because the nation states do not like that. They do not like that at all. Absolutely. Mm. And, and that's, you know, that was a big breakthrough for me was um, Jose Ramos Horta because, you know, East Timor couldn't get a resolution and Tibet couldn't get a resolution. And um, <clears throat> so Jose came to me and said, oh, you know, the ambassador for Portugal wants to see you. So, oh, yeah, so I go along there and and he says, oh, you're doing very well with Bougainville. Our intelligence tells us you're doing very well. And we have the best intelligence in Geneva. I said, what do you mean? What about the Yanks and the Chinese? And, that? and he said, no, no, no. He said, all the waiters are Portuguese because everybody, <laughs> goes, <laughs> everybody goes out now. and talks about it. So, and then they got Guinea-Bissau uh, on our side, and we always had the Solomons. They were always supporting us. So we got a uh, resolution through there, the first commission resolution. The second commission resolution uh, was funded by the Catholic Church. The resolution was pushed by the World Council of Churches, which is the Protestants. My mm -hmm. head office was Tibet. I, I just really couldn't fail, I don't think. I had all the spirit... Uh, all the spirit behind me, but that's uh, true. You, you worked out of the the office of Tibet, the yeah. Tibet, Tibetan government in exile's office in Geneva is where you where you worked from there, and a travel agency called Banana Circle, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. which yeah. subsequently became the the headquarters of the NGO that I ran, the Center on Housing Rights and Evictions. That's right. Yeah, mm. oh, and so so you know, to listeners, it's quite extraordinary, but the a country which probably most people have never heard of, um, Guinea-Bissau um, in West Africa was the country that took the lead at the Commission on Human Rights to um, to table a resolution on, on the human rights situation in Bougainville. Former and Portuguese they, colony. Former Portuguese colony, and that was the link, of course, because link, of yeah. uh, José Ramos Horta, who, of course, subsequently became uh, prime minister of um, East Timor, once East Timor, Timor-Leste, once they, they got independence in 1999, he, after fighting at the UN for 24 years, um, uh, eventually achieved their objective of independence. And um, um, I, I, he was... I, don't think, I don't think that would have happened without the Bougainville uh, resolution and the peacekeeping operation that happened on Bougainville, because that was all sort of transferred across to East Timor. Well, I don't know if there's a direct link that much, but I'm sure it influenced it. You know, I'm sure it influenced it somehow. And, sure. you know, and, um, and Vendrell they, from I the mean, UN, he, he took command of both situations. He did Bougainville first and then he went on and did East Timor. Yeah, so the trajectory, which is an extraordinary thing, everything happens on Bougainville. The war is going on. Eventually, the, the Bougainville interim government is formed. You're then sent out to kind of be the emissary for the people of Bougainville globally to get global attention to this crisis, um, which ended in, you know, uh, 10, 10 to 12 percent of the population being killed uh, or dying unnecessarily, and um, went from knowing nothing about international diplomacy to getting the issue on the agenda, then finally getting a first resolution up to a, four, a second, a third, fourth, and fifth resolution at the commission. And after the commission, f the fifth and final resolution at the commission, subcommission level, 
suddenly it went to the General Assembly. Yeah. So it went to the United Nations General Assembly. And what happened there? Uh, Well, they they had uh, the rapporteurs. We had rapporteurs and they had those reports and then... uh, and the Secretary General himself put out a report and, uh, I don't know, pressure was brought to bear, you know, they sent people to Papua New Guinea and Australia was getting very embarrassed. I mean, the reason that I was over there doing the Bougainville thing, we had a few delegations that came out we managed to smuggle out that first one with Kabwe and then there were a couple of others and then there was Moses Harvini here who was, uh, eventually got an Australian passport, but they... They cancelled all their passports, and that last resolution sponsored by Nigeria happened because Papua New Guinea sent a delegation to the UN, and they tried to shut me down by saying, don't listen to that man, he's white, and all Bougainvillians are black. And they got hauled off against into the Commission Against Racial Discrimination, and Nigeria came to me and said, is that true, you're doing this for that, those people? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, you've got the African bloc. Well, that's the biggest bloc in the UN. We were made in the shade from then on. <laughs> yeah, I remember that famous speech that the Nigerian um, representative made very late in the night, one night, during yeah. an, extended, an extended session. We've been having a few beers. <laughs> I think more than a few from memory. <laughs> And I remember, I I distinctly remember another element of that. I mean, imagine this, you know, the the government of Nigeria, the biggest country in Africa by far, is speaking in favor of a Bougainville resolution at the Commission on Human Rights at probably 11 at night. Um, There's no food available at the UN after four or five. So the only thing you can get is food from a vending machine. But there is a bar. So there was plenty of beer there. And then you, of course, took him over to the bar to prep him for his his speech, which he then read uh, very, very intoxicatedly um, while chewing gum. That's yeah, well, that's because he was freaked out. He was freaked out by the leader of his delegation, Madam Attar. I don't know if you remember her. She was oh, a yeah, great... yeah. Yeah, Judith Attar. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, so, so he many. He was chewing gum while reading into the microphone. Yeah, that was yeah, he did. absolutely. Didn't, want, didn't want Judith to smell his breath. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, that's hilarious. Mm. So anyway, it works. It works its way up to the General Assembly, and then uh, several reports are issued by the UN. And then, lo and behold, even before the the formal peace talks were concluded between the Bougainvillians and Papua New Guinea under the auspices of New Zealand on the the warship Lincoln, right? Is that right? Uh, no, no, why do they call no, it the no. Lincoln? You know, it was on a warship, wasn't it? The, no, the no, no, no. They don't have a warship oh. called the Lincoln. No, oh, no Lincoln well, is a university in, 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 in the, on the South Island. Uh, it, um, what's the name of the place that got destroyed by the earthquakes? Christchurch. Christchurch. Yeah. Uh, what what happened? Oh, okay. I, I thought there, there was a warship involved somewhere. There was uh, some the, negotiations on the, a ship. There was a negotiation way back in 1990 called the Endeavour. Oh, okay. uh, so New Zealand was into it then, but uh, it never went anywhere. All the ceasefires got violated. We had a lot. Oh, man, you wouldn't believe how many uh, meetings we had and discussions. And really what happened with the New Zealanders was... Um, um, We'd, we'd had meetings with Theodore Mirriung, and I, I just 
I think there must have been something like 30, 40 meetings that we had at various, and some of them were very sort of behind the scenes. So I was actually um, managing a hotel in Goulburn and they wanted to, to get me to come up to Bougainville to talk to uh, the BTG, the transitional government, which was the opposition to the BIG. And I said, I'm mm -hmm. not going anywhere. So they sent Capiato Puaria down and we had a meeting chaired by moral rearmament and we'd been hearing some approaches from New Zealand. So then Martin Meriori and myself and Moses, we went over to New Zealand and met with Don McKinnon, who was their foreign affairs minister and said, look, we don't want to have peace talks with Papua New Guinea. We need to get ourselves together, the Bougainvilleans. Mm -hmm. And so um, we rewrote Australia's foreign affairs policy to Bougainville in that meeting. And they sent in their C-130s and, and all these guys flew out from the jungles on Bougainville. Uh, from the both sides, from the north and from the south, to uh, Burnham, Burnham Military Base. And they virtually uh, gave us a base to hold these these talks. These guys, these guys came out of the jungle. They, they step out of the plane onto, uh, uh, out of the cars onto a, a parade ground that had about half an inch of ice on it, and they're in bare feet, slipping all over the place and rubbing noses and carrying on. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> then they all got issued with, you know, Nikes and tracksuits and stuff. And then we had, we had that first meeting between the two opposing forces of um, of, of Bougainville, and it was ah, oh, it was a hardcore meeting, man. People, it was. was called it was called a trout session, which means uh, throwing up, and they just sort of vomited at each other. And the women were the God, they were really. <laughs> Because they were the only ones that were sort of in the middle and said, look, we don't give a crap about you fighting people. You know, we want peace, we want normalcy, and you guys better sort yourselves out. So we did. And then we had a second meeting, which was even bigger. And then we met with Papua New Guinea. And by that stage, it was chaired by the UN and the Commonwealth Secretariat. They, they, we invited them. And, and Papua New Guinea had to rubber stamp it or we weren't going to go anywhere, you know. We wanted the UN involved and we weren't going to pr proceed. And this was a unilateral declaration by the whole of Bougainville. You want to talk to us? The UN's going to be there. The Commonwealth Secretariat's going to be there. This is now an international matter. It is no longer an internal matter for Papua New Guinea. What um, year was that? Jeez, oh, I keep asking me years, man. My my memory's a bit dim on this. Well, about I mean, 95, was... 95. Yeah. 95. Uh, and and then the 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 final peace agreement, the Lincoln Agreement, was signed yeah. in 99. Is that correct? I don't remember. 2000? No, no, before that. Yeah, it must have been 99. Yeah. I mean, there was a huge process, of just meeting after meeting, some of them clandestine. I held two meetings in, in the Gordon Hotel. The old local piss spot started calling it the Gordon International because I had all these guys wandering around. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but it was within the Lincoln Agreement that the, um, 
decision was made or the agreement was made that one day within 20 years there would be a referendum on independence. That was the condition, right? No, that came about with the Bougainville Peace Agreement, which was a, a latter document that we negotiated uh, after Lincoln. A lot of that was done in Port Moresby. Uh, okay, so that came after Lincoln. Okay, when when did that agreement come about? Mm. Or what, what I, else did the, that I don't have the dates say. in front of me. I, I mean, they're sitting up there on the shelf, and I could just look at them and refer no, to them. But, yeah, that's okay. But, what, what did it say, actually, the agreement, besides um, uh, that there would be an independence referendum allowed within a certain period of time? What else did it say? Well, it sort of set up the whole autonomy thing. There would be an autonomous government. Mm -hmm. That would be negotiated, and that was a whole lot of other negotiations that took place in Port Moresby. They weren't going to come at this referendum business, but, of course, we weren't going to back away from it. It was actually mm -hmm. Alexander Downer that came in and said, look, let's have the referendum, but let's have it 15 years later. So there you go. That'll give you the date. So it's 15 years backwards from this year. So 2004. Mm. So facilitated by Alexander Downer. Just that particular. We we were locked up. We were in Rabaul. The meeting was in Rabaul actually, and uh, at, at Kokopo, wandering around with masks over our nose, and the volcano was smoking and carrying on and. It was all pretty hectic, but then we got bogged down on this matter of the referendum, and Alexander Downer flew in and yeah, used right. his influence on Papua New Guinea to get it through. So he was foreign minister at the time? Yeah, he was foreign minister. I knew yeah, right. just recently come to the job. I mean, uh -huh. I had a terrible battle with Gareth Evans. He was a he was a hardcore, but no, Alexander Downer was he was a nice sort of a fellow, Alex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. We, all, we also had, um, when we had the first Burnham, uh, the Australians sent over a spook named Greg Moriarty. Ha, Moriarty. And, uh, and he was great. He was really good at getting the information back to Australia and keeping the process moving. And he was at all the meetings that happened after that. He later went on to become ambassador to Indonesia. I think he came back and headed up Asia. He was basically a spook, but he was a really nice guy. Hmm. You think he's related to Dean Moriarty by any chance? I think he's related to uh, Sherlock Holmes Moriarty, by the way <laughs> he played the game. He played yeah, very right. well. <laughs> right. So, okay, so you finally get a peace agreement. You finally get all the PNG forces removed from Bougainville. You have a autonomous government within the territory still of Papua New Guinea, but essentially allowed to operate how Bougainvillians wanted it to be operated. Well, first of all, we had the peacekeepers, you know, which is a multinational uh, a peacekeeping force, which was specific. It was regional. It was headed by New Zealand and, you know, Vanuatu and Fiji and, you know, Solomons. Every, everybody had some contingent in there. Once that was set up, Australia took over. So how, how many years were the UN peacekeepers there for? A couple of years. Couple of years, and then and then that was taken over by Australian forces. No, Australia took over the leadership of the multinational security team. 
Okay, so they were they were New like, Zealand set it up, are, and it was they're unarmed. Not still, they're not still there, are they? Are they still there? Ah, they're back there for the referendum. Oh, well, okay. A couple of them, you know, just a small contingent. It was a big operation. Yeah, right at the beginning, it would have been a big operation, and then once it it kind of worked, I guess yeah. they reduced their numbers, right? Yeah, and so, we had the UN UN mission on Bougainville that was there too, and they were sort of keeping an eye on everything. I mean, it it all stemmed back to the Human Rights Commission and the application of, of human rights as a weapon. Actually, I used it as a weapon, as a positive weapon, though a love yeah. weapon. Yeah. A positive weapon, you know, to, mm -hmm. to get people to, you know, that Declaration of Human Rights, I don't understand, it should be taught in primary schools and should be studied in high school. It's like the, it's like the, the message from the Mount that we developed ourselves for ourselves and that it's just not promoted. I, I didn't know anything about human rights until I went to the UN, you know, I think I'd violated a few before I left Bougainville, to be honest. <laughs> Right. Yeah, but the Universal Declaration is one of the, you know, it's one of the great sacred documents of all history, you know. Mm. And if everybody complied with that document, incredibly well-written, well-thought-out, concise, immaculate document in many ways, um, the world would be in a lot better position than it is today. I'll tell you that. Oh, I, an I, extraordinary just, document. People talk about human rights, but they've never, ever read that document. No, that should be mandatory reading from age three onwards, really. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Really. Yeah. I mean, it should yeah. be, as, you know, you learn to read and write. You learn the basic structure of human decency. That's ultimately what it's all about. That's it. Human dignity and human decency, you know, mm -hmm. as if we were all what we're meant to be and what we are, which is one human family. And that's kind of the articulation of that, you know. So, you know. We, we again celebrate this the existence of that document, which I think this year is, yeah, 71 years old. Yeah, an extraordinary uh, bit of human achievement, you know. Of course, the so, nation states will never promote it into the, into the educational curriculum because uh, that nasty self-determination issue. Well, I think they do. I mean, I think it's it's more widely known than than people you know, realize, but it's not, it's not the, the cornerstone document that it should be in every kid's basic education and then up upwards, you know, you should have to read it before you take every new job, you know, you should have to read it before you go to the voting booth, you know, you should have to read it um, on your birthday, you know, create a tradition like that. Every time you have a birthday, go back to the Universal Declaration, read it and live it, you know, because mm. really, I mean, nothing, nothing would be better for the human race than people living the ideals put in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you know, including self-determination. And self-determination is, you know, very controversial on the one hand, and yet every single country that exists in the world today essentially exercised their right to self-determination before they became a nation-state. Hmm. And that's that brings us to the incredible issue of Bougainville voting in three days. Hmm. Um on whether or not to become an independent nation. So on the 23rd of November, I think there's two rounds of voting, one now in November and then one in December. Um, but people will essentially be voting on that that very clear proposition, independence yes or independence no. 
Mm. All opinion polls seem to be pointing to the fact that they're going to vote yes. Um, I mean, you never know until the vote is counted, but that's what it looks like will happen. Um, so I guess the first question is what, given the fact that it's got the world's biggest copper mine slash gold mine, it's got the best cocoa in the world that, that makes the best chocolate, is some of the best, cleanest water, it has some of the most fertile soil, so on and so forth. There's a plenty of resource base to uh, build the economy up. Um, but first of all, do you think they will vote yes? I mean, what's your thought on that? They just fought a war of independence, man. So, looking yes. likely. Looking likely. It's looking mm -hmm. likely. And the thing is that, you know, I used to have my old friend Henry Twigetts when I was a teenager over in the village, and he, he worked as an electrician in Australia, and he came back and and he had this beautiful little hut on the beach and he had his wife and the pigs underneath and, you know, chickens in the garden and stuff. And he loved his beer, so I used to take... This is pre the indigenous being able to drink beer. I'd take a case of beer over and we'd sit on his veranda and we'd, we'd talk and he'd, I'd say, well, what are you doing now? And he, he used to mumble and say bloody all the time and stuff. But he said, I've come back here, you know, I'm going to open up a plantation, I'm going to get a tractor, I'm going to get this, I'm going to get a TV and music. And he's a very fine musician, by the way, but that's another thing. But I, I'd say to him, Henry, just listen to me for a minute. You know, we're sitting here on this veranda. There's some guy in New York, he's trying to figure out how to sell you a TV, a generator, a tractor, or this or that or the other. And then it comes lunchtime and he puts his feet up and he thinks, I wish I was on a tropical island, on a beach, in a thatched cottage with a beautiful native woman and with a canoe out the front and fish everywhere and I flick a seed over the shoulder and I've got something to eat. And then as soon as the lunch hour's over, he goes back trying to figure out how to screw it all up. You guys have got the best thing going in the world. And a lot of people are, are realising that on Bougainville, but... There's greed, you know, there's capitalism and and there's fear, there's fear of, of, of trying to live that way in the modern world. Well, I don't see why you can't. And then you can grow cocoa. It's worth a fortune and it's going to be worth more and more as time goes on because God is chocolate. You know, mm -hmm. so <laughs> I don't know. I you know, and then there's just been a TV program with Sam Khan, uh, the former commander of the BRA, putting up a great map that he's developed on his trip to Beijing with how the Chinese are going to build a city here and a road there and bridges here and they're going to invest a billion dollars and all dependent on opening up the mine, of course. And then there's all kinds of carpetbaggers. There must be about 10 different carpetbaggers up there all doing deals with landowners because one thing that, that came about from the BPA and from the transfer of autonomy is that the mining rights now belong to Bougainville and under the constitution, the landowners own those rights, not just six feet. They own the rights to all the minerals from there to the centre of the earth. And so the carpetbaggers go up there and do what Rio Tinto did, you know, find a few chiefs and slip them a few envelopes and... The worst thing about, about what's happened is that we've got a Westminster system of government and there's no more corrupt system. You know, you see these carpet bags, see these members of parliament walking around with brown envelopes every fortnight with just stacked with bills that they're, 
you know, various lobbyists are just laying on them to try and get their hands on some mining. The corruption is just terrible. If they'd used traditional government, and, and this is, gets back to your oneness thing, to have a oneness government, you have to start from the village level. That's the most important government is your local government. Mm-hmm. And then you, you, you build from there, you know, you have your village government and then you have your community government and then they send someone up to the next level and then eventually you have your, your top level government with a triumvirate at the top. Right. And the triumvirate says, well, you can be president for, you know, this year and blah, blah. You know, something like that. It just avoids corruption. But when you've got ministers with portfolios, it's just... And, and then they have to vote on decisions. of Some guy, uh, Jeffrey McGlynn, he actually, I think he just sells mining equipment. He's out of Perth. He's done some deal with the government up there that... Uh, uh, he, he will control all mineral rights on Bougainville and Bougainville will own 60% of those and he'll only own 40%, but eventually Bougainville will own that. Well, of course, it'll all get diminished in share floats and this, that and the other. And they're trying to sell the entire future of the children of Bougainville to some fly-by-night dude out of Perth. Uh, I mean, it, it got voted down, but not because uh, the ministers... And that the government wanted to push That's it. Not, that didn't that, happen. Right? That was a proposal, and it was signed off on by the government, but the people just got up no good. I mean, there was going to be another revolution at the House of Parliament if they didn't back out of that one. So that's just on the back burner now. Yeah, right. So, I mean, it sounds like you're a bit ambivalent about... Ambivalent? Oh, you, ambivalent, ambivalent no. independence? No, independence is a must. Otherwise, there would be another war. No, it's got to be independent. It's just what they do with it from there, you know, how how the grassroots handles it. You know, it's all very well and good for the leaders to go off and make statements about bloody China and McGlynn and all this kind of stuff. The real people are in those villages, and they're the people that get affected by all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You know. Oh, I'd love to be there. I mean, Kabui... Kabui was in Geneva when they celebrated a thousand years of democracy. And the fireworks displays were going off. And he said, oh, when we get our independence, we'll have a fireworks display like this. Well, I reckon they probably blew about three years of Bougainville's GDP that night, you know. <laughs> yeah, probably. probably. You know well, too, it's too bad he didn't live to see the day, you know. Yeah, well, All he committed probably. suicide because of one of these mining deals. Yeah, early on, just after um, the establishment of the AVG, I was attaché to President Carberry, and we had this Westminster government. And then uh, Sam Kona uh, had been the PNGDF, and his Batman was a guy named Philip Raleigh, and Philip Raleigh met a guy named Lindsay Semple, who wanted to invest, and Philip Raleigh got him investing in timber. And then he said, oh, look, if you really want to get serious, I'll take you over to talk to my mate Sam, and you can get into the mining. Oh, well, he loved that. And uh, so he came over, some uh, established some Canadian miner, um, meaning small mining company, mm-hmm. and... Um, and started, smoked a big cigar and had a big Yankee accent and that and started handing out these brown envelopes and got all this support. And um, Kabwe 
couldn't stop it. We were giving him advice, you know, the administrator, Simulili and Capiato and myself and Chris so was not, was at this time the the president of Bougainville or what was his title? Yeah, Kabuli was a, he was the president. Right, of the autonomous region of Bougainville. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. But yep, I mean, when he, when he was president of the BIG, you know, he was a benevolent dictator and he had really good, clean advice. But when you get when you get Westminster, then you've got all these representatives there and then they've got portfolios and then they get bribed and then if they all get together and form a block, a block well, Kabuli has no power. So he had no choice but to go ahead with this deal. And he knew, he knew he'd made a mistake. Although that money paid for him to have his heart done down in Brisbane, when he flew back and he saw the effects of what was happening with this deal, he just stopped taking his medication and died. Wow. Mm. He, he just couldn't handle it, you mean? No, it was all wrong. I mean... It was just too it, shocking for him to keep on living. Yeah, we'd brought them to that point where we could have really done a lot of good things. JK and I used to go over to Moresby. We had the Japanese building bridges. We had the Kiwis wanted to come in and, and set up a telecommunications service. We were moving things. But that that whole process of government was actually blocking things and stopping things and being lobbied by various spooks and carpetbaggers. And it was just... It's just so messy. I don't think it suits an Indigenous country to have Westminster government, to be honest. I mean, it doesn't work in Papua New Guinea. They they change their prime ministers there more than they change their underpants. Then they go and wash them and bring them back again. Yeah, right, right. Well, I mean, there was a show on um, ABC or Australian television the other night about the um, the potential role of China in an independent Bougainville. Um, like you were alluding to there, mm. um, which they're going to presumably make part of their Belt and Road initiative um, all around the world, and which will, of course, give them uh, a considerable advantage over other, um, you know, trading partners and diplomatic partners. And one of the things that was said in that show was that, you know, neither Australia nor the United States nor any other major political actor is expressing nearly the amount of interest in Bougainville that China is. So the chances are that uh, China's influence in Bougainville will become dramatically more than it is today once independence occurs. The current president was once ambassador to China for the Papua New Guinea government, John Momus. Sam uh -huh. Khan has been over to Beijing, you know, and these guys don't muck around. There's no brown envelopes, man. We're talking about million-dollar deposits into bank accounts. Right. That's, that's pretty hard. You know, someone comes up to you and says, here's a million bucks, you know. Um, are you one of mine? Yeah, I'm one of yours. So what's I mean, Australia's role in Bougainville now? Do you know? I, I don't really know myself. Well, they, they tried to they, they they tried to set up a high commission there in Papua New Guinea, made them take it away. I think that if that had gone ahead, it would would be a lot better situation as far as Bougainville and Australia goes. But Australia's got to be very careful. They can't be backing Bougainville's independence, at least not until after the referendum. We'll see what happens after the referendum. It's a whole new ball game. Do they have an official position on the referendum right now, Australia? 
No, they can't. So they're neutral. They're not saying we want, we support independence, we don't support independence. They're just standing back. They've put huge amounts of money into developing this process, and this is the process. So they can't interfere with that. They've just got to let it happen. This is a, a democratic process now ongoing and Australia's observing of course they've, they've got you know all kinds of boomerang aid people doing this that and the other on the island and they've got spooks they've got all kinds of things going and also they, they Maurice Payne has just been to Bougainville very recently oh really you know, oh I yeah know, I, I missed that uh-huh yeah they've got an interest but they can't say anything no one can say anything they've got to let the people have their say after the people have their say you know, then that's where the China threat comes in because uh, apparently it's got to be ratified by Papua New Guinea. If Papua New Guinea says, no, you know, bugger off, we're not going to give you independence, well, then they'll issue another UDI, and this time China will recognise them. Now, what is that going to do? Right, and and have you heard what PNG is planning to do if the vote is yes? Is that known? No, that's an unknown. Yeah, there'll right. be big heads in there saying, no, no, you know, it's an integral part of Papua New Guinea, and if you break that up, you you know, you break up PNG. But in actual fact, you know, Bougainville is an autonomous island, and you've got New Britain and New Ireland. They'll probably go for it at some stage. And then you've got Papua New Guinea, and maybe they'll real align with East Timor, uh, uh, West Papua at some stage. Who knows? But they're, they're also a block. They're on the same piece of land. New mm-hmm. Britain, New Ireland and Bougainville, they're on different pieces of land, you know, with vast oceans separating them. They are different cultures. Right, right. I mean, these are all like extremely major, major issues in an area of the world that really rarely gets, uh, you know, the attention it deserves. And, you know, another aspect of the whole Bougainville story, which we didn't talk about yet, was the the project that, we, that you, me and, and a range of others were involved in regarding um, attempting to acquire land on Bougainville for the first ever planned relocation of climate migrants or climate displaced people from the Carteret Islands onto onto Bougainville, which is the nearest uh, big piece of safe land to um, that atoll, which we worked on together in 2007. Um, Ultimately unsuccessful, but we tried. We came close. Well, they tried it too. I mean, I, I had it in my mind on the, the Rawa, the plantation, that because uh, Papua New Guineans weren't on Bougainville anymore and they were our labour line, you know, I had 130 Papua New Guineans working for me uh, before the, the crisis. Uh-huh. And I, so who's going to do all this work? You know, the Bougainvillians have got their own land. They grow their own cocoa on it, and they don't, you know, they don't want to go doing that sort of manual labour. They're a bit above that. They never did. We had them as, you know, a chef or a tractor driver or, you know, they only went for those sort of elite positions. And um, mm-hmm. so my idea, when after you explained to me what was going on and I did some research into it, was that the atolls were getting flooded. They're walking around with water up to their ankles because of the rising sea levels. Yeah. So I thought, well, like I could give them like blocks on the plantation and as long as they bring the cocoa to the factory, well, then I can run a planned station instead of a plantation. 
But the the problem was that the, the PNGBC had been trying to trying to bankrupt me to stop me travelling because I was travelling for Bougainville, and they didn't give up. Uh, so I, I just owed too much money. And a guy came along, Jeffrey Manton, and said he would buy it. And I said, well, on condition that you come down and talk to Scott and uh, and the Atolls people about this idea I've got. And uh, he said that, that, well, I explained to him, you're not going to run a plantation without labour and how are you going to get labour? This is one way that you might be able to do it. So he was into it and he came down. We had that meeting. And uh, some of them did move over from the atolls. They moved over to Timput's Mission Station. and mm-hmm. But, of course, they didn't move to Rowa because Jeffrey Mansell owns about eight plantations. He bought them all from the bank, and I don't know what he's going to do with them, but he, he you know, a plantation is a farm. You've got to be living there. Godfrey. I think he was called Godfrey Mantle, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, Godfrey. Yeah, yeah. Godfrey, yeah, yeah Godfrey, Godfrey. Man. yeah, yeah. See, the thing yeah, about well, plantations, uh, like the Bougainvilleans say, well, it's all over now, you've done your job, you know, go and get the plantation going. I said, the plantation took bloody 100 years to set up. You know, I used to think four years before I bought a tractor, I had five of those. I had trucks, I had factories, I had houses. I had, you know, you can't just flick your fim- fingers and build a farm. That doesn't happen, unless you're China, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. But, mm. we, you know, and the other, of course... Uh, actor involved in that process was the government of Bougainville, who we discussed the possibility with to uh, purchase the land in question, on also on the condition that they would use it as a resettlement site for people from the Carterets. And I thought at the time that was really going to happen. I mean, that was not sounding impossible at all. And then uh, it all fell through in the end. I don't, I don't think it was a complete failure, Scott. I think up there on Booker at Kessa or one of those old plantations, the landowners themselves invited them over. And there's some of them there that are working with the landowners up on small Booker. Uh, but they're more related to, to Booker people than they are to mainlanders. Yeah, right. But the little the plan that we developed was so... Seem on paper seemingly so workable, right? You know, you, the, there's land available. There's there's an income generating possibility. There's a willingness uh, by the landowner to sell it to the government. The government's problems get solved. The islanders' problems get solved. Your problems get solved, and in the process, you end up solving the bigger problem of of you know climate displacement in the region and showing that it can actually work if you have you know an actively involved government that wants to find a solution to what's going to become and which already is um, but, uh, one of the world's greatest problems, what to do about all these hundreds of millions of people that are going to need new land, you know? So that was in the back of, you know, our mind the whole time, you know, let's make a positive out of a negative and try to find a really constructive rights-based way to solve looming climate displacement. And so, yeah, it's working for some, um, but it's not working to the degree that I think it still could have worked on Bougainville if the government was involved um, in the right way from the start. Yeah, well, I don't know. You know, if I if I'd have held on to the plantation and 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 got some backing to to restore some infrastructure and and I was actually there on the ground, it would have worked, Scott. I would have done the right thing by them and set it up the right way, and it would have worked. But you've got to have yeah, I think somebody. It would have 
Yeah. You've got to have somebody doing it. You know, someone has to, someone has to steer the ship. And well, you, you can't just get, say, you've got, you got land, guys come over, do whatever you like. No, no, it's all got to be managed and instructed and taught. You know, they don't grow cocoa out there in the atolls. No, and the that's quite enough. Land is the first step on a much, much longer journey, you know. Mm. But, it, you know, I got the impression from the government officials that we talked to about it that, um, you know, they were they were more than <laughs> just just peripherally interested in that idea, you know, and that they were thinking about allocating resources to being able to make it happen, at least the land portion of the equation. Um, and I still believe that as a system, you know, as a, as a general generic blueprint for dealing with climate displacement, that that model holds out the greatest hope. You know, if you, sure, unless you have it, once, it, once, place, it, once again, as a cultural thing, you pick up the the people from the atolls who love their clam soup and, you know, their yeah, tarot sure, and stuff. Sure. And then yep. you plonk them on a bit of land on the mainland and say, you know, grow cocoa. I mean, you've got to be able to... When I first I started this system before the crisis, I was developing smallholder blocks, and what I did was I gave them the cocoa plants, and I gave them a bank account against the future crops. See, they've got to have an income. They've got to have a way of surviving. They've got to. It's not the atoll, so they don't have their clams, and they don't have their yams, and they don't have their taro. They've got to have some access to to money well they're suddenly they're suddenly part of the cash economy for the first mm. time yeah which is like one of the biggest shocks you could ever endure right as somebody in a subsistence economy moving into a cash economy i mean yeah. that's just just ruthless actually to imagine what that transition must be like for people that you know go through that well they, so, they built a few houses and tin puts and they tried but you know and then you've got the landowner saying this is our land and this is our land my land was my land and it could have worked there i couldn't see it working anywhere else to be honest because of this every inch being under land dispute well yeah and i think they i think ursula uh Rokova, who heads the um the group representing the Carteret islanders it's called tuleli paisa um, the land that she acquired was from the church, mm. right? So mm. I, as far as I know, Bougainville is about 97% customarily owned. There's only a very small percentage that's state land or private land, titled land or church land. Mm. So you're not really dealing with very much supply when it comes to, you know, freed up land resources that could be used to settle um you know, people from the atolls. So, um, so what are you going to do on? Uh, I think the second voting round is in the, like the seventh or something of December. Uh, when they announce results, are you going to try to go back? Um, are you going to celebrate? What are you going to do? Oh, I don't know. I'm not looking that far. If my book's published and I've got some money, I might fly up there. But I'm, you know, I just, uh, I'm a subsistence farmer at the moment. Farming the uh, the pension system. Well, and you're a, a very talented painter, that's for sure. Well, I haven't done any of that for three years. That's how long it's taken to write the book. Oh, really? Well, I have your artwork all over my house, so I'm a I've proud exhi- owner thereof. <laughs> I've done a bit. I've got an exhibition coming up in the Gold Coast uh, starting the 7th of December, so I have done a bit of painting. Awesome, awesome, mm. awesome. 
Well, um, I think um, I think listeners will find that story very interesting. At least we certainly hope so. So, do you want to add anything more before we wrap it up today, Mike? No, I, I couldn't have done any of this without you, Scott, and 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 all the support that you gave us. You know, it was it was really amazing and and very instructive, and we had a lot of fun. I think that's the whole thing. We we made it fun, and it worked. So much fun. I mean, people people think that doing global politics is only you know a slog, but let's just say. Um, there were many stories that we could have told you today that we didn't tell you because they were so much fun. <laughs> read the book. Read the book. Read the, read the book. That's right. That's right. Coming soon. Coming soon. Hopefully. Okay, my friend. Well, it's been great pleasure to talk to you today. And everybody who's listening, please um, let us know what you think. You can write to info at onenessworld.org if you have any comments. Um, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and soon a range of other um, podcast platforms. And if you'd like us to cover any particular themes um, in the future, let us know. Well, some of the upcoming themes we're going to talk about are um, um, solving climate displacement in Bangladesh. We'll be talking with some Bangladeshis there. We'll be talking with some uh global explorers hopefully we'll be talking to the un in mauritania in west africa about what's going on in that country and a whole range of other themes are coming up so hope you'll join us and um thanks for listening today we really hope to hear from you all very soon okay take care everybody bye <laughs>